is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the sports world to the arts world, from business, because my goodness, where will we be without inventors and innovators in American business, and straight down to faith leaders. And this is our very first story about, well, buildings and the spaces we live in and inhabit. And we bring you the story of a man who single-handedly changed the way America and the world looks at architecture. Here's Jesse Edwards with the story. Most Americans are at least somewhat familiar with the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright. Even if by some chance you don't know his name, you've seen and probably admired his work on a calendar or in a magazine. Born in 1867, he designed over a thousand structures, 532 of which were completed. Wright believed in designing structures that were in harmony with humanity and its environment, a philosophy he called organic architecture. He was recorded in 1956 at the Plaza Hotel in New York City where he talked about his philosophies on architecture, society, culture, education, and music. He was well known for being outspoken, bombastic, a master of publicity, highly opinionated, and ruggedly individualistic a magnificently flawed and complex character. His father was a music teacher and a Baptist minister. My father taught me. He was a preacher, but he was first of all a musician and made his living, or tried to, teaching music later on. He never was able to support us by way of it, and his life was a kind of tragedy. But he taught me that a symphony was an edifice of sound, and that it was built. And I learned pretty soon that it was built by the same kind of mind in much the same way that a building is built. And when that came to me, I used to sit and listen to the only master that was immaculate in my my listening was Beethoven. He was a great architect. And he had a great disciple, and his greatest disciple was Brahms. Brahms was a true disciple, such as any uh, man could be proud to have. If I had in architecture a disciple such as Brahms was, where Beethoven was concerned, I should be extremely happy. Frank Lloyd Wright never took on any disciples, and his father left him when he was 14 years old. He attended high school in Madison, Wisconsin, but there's no evidence of his graduation. He was admitted to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a special student in 1886, but he left without a degree. In 1887, Wright went to Chicago looking for work after the Great Chicago Fire, where he was hired as a draftsman. On June 1st of 1889, Frank Lloyd Wright marries his first wife, Catherine, and by 1893, now in his mid-20s, opens his own practice and begins planning. The thing comes to life in a plan because you can't make a plan without a sense of what the plan is for. And I think a plan is always beautiful, perhaps more beautiful than anything that ever comes afterward. Plan, the idea, is the plan. The plan contains the idea. Now, the house is an idea, if it's a good house. And that idea embraces all that composes, or will compose, the uh, usefulness and beauty of that house. It's right there in the plan. 
By 1901, Wright had completed about 50 projects, including many houses in Oak Park, Illinois. Four of those houses have been identified as the onset of the prairie style of architecture. Horizontal lines, flat roofs with broad overhanging eaves, windows grouped in horizontal bands, integration with the landscape, solid construction, craftsmanship, and a discipline in the use of ornament. Frank Lloyd Wright promoted an idea of organic architecture, the primary tenet of which was that a structure should look as if it naturally grew from the site. It's all a nature study, the building of a house. And when you proceed from generals to particulars, as you do when you are building, that's your natural gut, natural center line of your effort would be the what is the natural thing? What is the nature of your materials? Even the nature of your client? The nature of the situation on which the house is built? Nature of the climate? And I suppose it would be the same in, in a great composition like Beethoven's Irwaka when he was celebrating the heroism of Napoleon and then toward the end of his effort began to feel that Napoleon, after all, was dead so far as his ideal was concerned, and a great sense of tragedy overcame him, and you feel it in the music. It's a great story, a great revelation of a man's worship and disillusionment. Frank Lloyd Wright's prairie houses also featured open floor plans, a prominent central chimney, built-in stylized cabinetry, and a wide use of natural materials, especially stone and wood. He was meticulous when choosing what materials he would use to build with. Well, those that are native, of course, are best, most appropriate, and the cheapest, most feasible. If there's stone in the neighborhood, we like to use stone. If there are kills and there's brick, and brick is characteristic, well, far fire-built houses are good. And old wood is always the friend of man. Don't you feel friendly to a tree when you see one? And if you don't see one, you're hungry for association with trees. Trees and human beings belong together. I don't think one could exist without the other, perhaps. If they could, it would be the tree that would survive. <laughs> When we return, the architecture, life, and philosophy of the greatest American architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, in his own words, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of America's greatest architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, and what we try to do on this show, well, you're hearing it, anytime we get a chance, you get to hear from the human being, the person himself, and how lucky we are to hear the voice so beautifully and clearly from Frank Lloyd Wright himself. You see, early in life I had to choose between honest arrogance and uh, hypocritical humility. I chose honest arrogance and have seen no occasion to change. After establishing a solid reputation for building houses around the turn of the century, Frank Lloyd Wright left his wife and ran off with one of his clients' wives, Martha Borthwick. This was such a public spectacle at the time that the press hounded them relentlessly. He lost most of his clients and banks stopped loaning him money. To avoid scrutiny, Frank and Martha escaped to Europe for two years. Once public outcry had calmed, they returned to the United States and built Taliesin, the 600-acre estate near the village of Spring Green, Wisconsin. On August 15, 1914, while Wright was working in Chicago, a disgruntled servant set fire to the living quarters at Taliesin and murdered seven people with an axe as they fled from the burning structure. The dead included his mistress, Martha, and her two children. This marked the end of Frank Lloyd Wright's career for nearly 20 years. His first wife, Catherine, granted him a divorce in 1922 with the stipulation that Wright could not marry his latest lover, Maud Noel. They were married in 1923, but her addiction to morphine led to the failure of that marriage less than a year later. Wright would marry his third wife, Olga, in 1925. It would be another 10 years before Frank Lloyd Wright would make his triumphant comeback as the public forgot or forgave his transgressions. Falling Water is an extraordinary house designed in 1935 by Frank Lloyd Wright, built on top of a 30-foot waterfall. It is by far his most popular building and best exemplifies his philosophy of organic architecture, the harmonious union of art and nature. Located in the mountains of southwestern Pennsylvania, roughly 70 miles outside of Pittsburgh, it's listed among Smithsonian's life list of 28 places to visit before you die. The house was meant to complement its site while still competing with the drama of the falls and their endless sounds of crashing water. The power of the falls is always felt, not visually, but through sound, as the breaking water is constantly heard throughout the entire house. 30 million people must have seen falling water by now. But it was a very simple expression of uh, a man's love for that particular site, the music of the waterfall. And never before had I been given concrete and steel to build a building with. You see, when steel comes into your hand, you can pull on the building and you have what's called a cantilever. Now, the cantilever is this principle of tension. Your arm reaching out from your body and held by the sinews and muscles above, moving as you wish to move it as a cantilever. The trunk, of course, is a support that's in compression. But you can suspend from the end of the cantilever fabrications of any kind. So the new principle in architecture is this principle of the interior support the extended slab, the arm, and the falling screen hanging to the slab. Now that's the structural synthesis of my own building. 
and it is essentially organic in itself. And that is falling water in principle. And the grammar of falling water, now we call the grammar of the building, the shapely means you use to, to uh, make the building manifest. Falling water is an architectural marvel, but it has a few major flaws. Its skylights leak, the waterfall promotes mold growth, and the builders didn't use enough reinforcing steel to support the first floor's concrete skeleton. Despite its flaws, falling water is a masterful work of art. The considerations that Wright would take into account before crafting such a milestone of architecture went far beyond the basic materials used to build a house. The nature of the site, like falling water, and next, the nature of the materials you have to use and the people you're going to work for, and what it is they want to live in, and you have to have an eye on what they want to live for, too. I can't see any future in anything but an individual type of architecture. If the Declaration of Independence in America means anything, and democratic life means anything, that's practically what it means. You see, I was Italius in my uh, country home, lying on the bench, the Dutch door half closed below. Great curiosity existed, it was during a tragedy at Taliesin, and people came in droves to look around, and two women ranged up on a Sunday morning, looked all around into the living room, and old and odd, and how uh, beautiful this was, and how that was so interesting, then a pause. Finally, one of them said to the other, well, I wonder if I'd like living in a place like this as much as I'd like living in a regular home. Well, now that's the way it all began. They were, these things were strange. They weren't accustomed. They were accustomed to stuffiness and uh, a messy environment and things never going together, making a kind of commotion. And they didn't understand it and didn't want to understand it. They put it on like some old garment when they built a house without thinking. But now comes the uh, necessity for not just taste, but some knowledge. You have to know now, a little better and a little further along, what constitutes good proportion, harmony in building, great and beautiful environment. And it's a culture and a growth in itself of the soul. So the people who live in these advanced houses, I think that's what we can call them, must have a greater feeling for life. They must be more in themselves than the people who haven't arrived at that stage in their development. And once they have arrived there, they are liberated, they feel, and they see so much more than they never saw before. They see the uh, lineaments of nature, and as Blake would put it, uh, the lineaments of gratified desire. The original estimated cost for building falling water was $35,000, but the total was closer to $155,000, approximately $2.7 million adjusted for inflation. The cost of restoring the house in 2001 was $11.5 million. Frank Lloyd Wright believed that his architecture and design had the ability to fundamentally change the lives of the people who lived in his buildings, and eventually would change the way society lived in harmony with nature. 
Good architecture creates good behavior. I believe now people are going to know what constitutes good architecture, good environment, and of course good living has to go with it. Good dressing too, good conduct also. All these good things are dependent more or less one on the other and are assisting one another more or less. Because you wouldn't dress in a loud and vulgar way in a quiet and beautiful room. Nor would you be so satisfied with tawdry jazz, perhaps, in a room that was beautifully conceived and had a lovely atmosphere and belonged where it was. It would seem more than ever discordant. So these things all match up as you go along and add up to something that we call culture. Isn't that it? That's what culture means. Wright believed that good architecture created good behavior, which would inevitably lead to a better culture. But this idea clashed with the status quo of his time, and to this day, that education creates the culture. Book smarts versus street smarts. Now, culture and education are two very different things as we practice them. Culture is the developing of the thing by way of itself. And education is informing, teaching, telling, pushing around the individual. So it's only by a natural growth that you can attain culture. But you can come back from a school all filled with, with stuffed with ideas and what we call conditioned instead of enlightened. Isn't that so? So education today doesn't mean culture. And today I think all these youngsters are educated far beyond their capacity and not cultured at all. So I say that education today is not even on speaking terms of what we should call culture. And we need culture more and education less. When we return, Frank Lloyd Wright, the rugged individualist, digs deeper into the clash between culture and education, quality over quantity, and his contempt of standardization. Right here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to the life of Frank Lloyd Wright. And when we left off, Wright was making the distinction between culture and education. And by the way, does this still resonate today, folks? You bet you it does. You're all nodding as you're listening to him talk. Here's Jesse. Wright inspired and continues to inspire generations of young and upcoming architects through not just his works, but his ability to think and design in ways that weren't being taught in institutions of higher learning. How is originality cultivated when everyone is being taught to think the same way? I think all these young people in school now are hungry for something that they don't get or they wouldn't write to me. And I think also that... It's an instinct, 
of the higher nature. You see, you're only human as you rise above the animal. Your animal self is one fundamental factor or element in your life. Then when you come into the higher things that are not animal, the things of the spirit, then you get into this realm that we call art, and you begin to look for things that are creative rather than just uh, repetitive. And I think there's where you're in the realm of culture rather than education, because you can educate an animal. You've seen them do tricks, haven't you? Frank Lloyd Wright was outspoken, to say the least, about his disdain for the ever-increasing collectivist mentality that was rising in American culture during his lifetime. Standardization was not compatible with architecture or any other form of art as far as he was concerned. It was the individual, not the masses, which was the foundation for the American way of life. It's got to be an individual affair. It's got to be a slow affair. It's got to be a peculiar to you affair. Now, how are you going to do it with 20,000 students in a university? How are you going to do it with high schools crammed two stories, three stories high with a crowd of students? As a matter of fact, culture is not for the herd. Culture is not for the crowd. Culture is an individual thing. And that's what our forefathers struck when they decided, and when they declared, I mean, that that, uh, the individual is sovereign. The sovereignty of the individual. Now, that means a certain premium on aloneness to start with. A certain uh, rejection of the common man as common. But insisting on his privilege to be uncommon. And so that exists in every human soul today. And this is the country that we live in that declares it. The only one that has made it official. The only one that has made it constitutional to be yourself. (laughs) And we see abuses of it, of course, all down the line now. We uh, We see ourselves all drifting back again drifting toward the commonplace, drifting toward the common man. And you hear it asserted that uh, that was what our country meant, that the common man was free to be common. Well, he wasn't. He was free to become uncommon. And that's the freedom that we ought to tote and talk about. And we should resent with all our strength this drift toward equalitarianism, which is commonness raised to the nth power. Wright was raging against the machine age, the era roughly between 1880 and 1945 that ran parallel with his own time on Earth. Life was getting faster. The steam engine was replaced with internal combustion and electric motors. Mass production of high-volume goods on assembly lines, including the automobile, were making life easier for average people. Radio and phonograph technology was making the world smaller as communication was being broadcast and distributed to the masses. Fast, long-distance travel by car, train, and aircraft was now attainable for nearly everyone. But this all came at a cost, according to Frank Lloyd Wright. 
The machine age could be used to create a new kind of beauty and higher way of living, or it could be exploited to create a cookie-cutter culture that would become detrimental to the individual. It's taken me all these years to learn that standardization is no bar to beauty. And the standardization can be controlled and the machine used as a tool to develop a beauty greater and more beneficent, more pervading, more all-embracing than anything we ever knew before. So that's what this age means. That's what the machine age should mean. But it's being exploited and uh, turned inside out, turned over wrong side up by all these opportunists and this desire for material uh, benefits and success. Same old story. There's nothing new in it. It's just as it always has been. It's only when it is conquered and we're, we're aware of this greater and finer way of life that we're truly Americans in the sense that we have a new country and a new ideal and we have a new, therefore, bound to have a new architecture. A new architecture is what Frank Lloyd Wright brought to the world. His buildings stand as monuments to rugged individualism at a time when standardization and mass production were the name of the game. Nothing represented standardization in architecture to Wright more than what he saw in big cities across the country and the world. In his mind, the future was in country living. Well, the city, of course, is a, is a thing of the past. There was a time during the Middle Ages when it was the only source of culture. There was no way of acquiring this thing we call culture except by direct contact. It isn't so now. It hasn't been so for many years. It wasn't even so when this country was founded, but of course it was more so. But gradually, all the, the development of all these sciences, the gifts of science to us, have made this crowding unnecessary. And it always was, after the Middle Ages, it always was a detriment. Never was any real asset to humanity. And especially when the emphasis now comes on the individual and the growth of the individual unit and the whole process of civilization dependent upon the quality of that individual, especially, we've got to give over this uh, crowd. We've got to get out of the crowd. We've got to be all the crowd there is ourselves in proportion as we desire it. Getting out of the crowd, standing out as an individual, pushing back against standardization, much like our founding fathers, these are the qualities that Wright wanted for himself and for our country. When we return, the life and philosophies of Frank Lloyd Wright continue with architecture as the mother of all art, here on Our American Stories.
hear everything we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for the newsletter, follow us on Facebook, or browse through our archives to hear us whenever and wherever you want, absolutely free. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we conclude the story of Frank Lloyd Wright, and what a joy, what a pleasure it is to hear from the man himself, the greatest architect in American history, I think there's no doubt, and it's as if he's speaking to us, as if he's here right now, and by the way, he's talking about things we're still talking about right now, aren't we? And that's what made Frank Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, we've heard him talk about art, architecture, culture, society, education, life itself, here again is Jesse with the last part of this story. American filmmaker and historian Ken Burns saw Frank Lloyd Wright as the greatest American architect of all time. In his documentary in the life of Wright, Burns profiled his personality, egocentric and somewhat aggrandizing, and his talent, which was varied, original, and distinctive in this fascinating view of the architect who was an artist of the new. He is the prototypical American in every way. He's got a second act, which people have been saying we don't have. He, he has a third act. He's also the greatest American architect, without a doubt. His overweening ego notwithstanding, that is true. The legacy of the buildings are great. This roller coaster of a personal life makes the biography so interesting. And in the end, he is asking us not just to live and like his houses the way an artist might want you to like his paintings. He's asking you to rethink what a house is and how we live. Architecture is the most important art because it's working on us all the time. And we don't choose to go to it. It's there with us all the time. It's not like the ballet or the theater or the cinema or television. It's working on us now. And he's the only person I know who every moment of his life insisted that we wake up and that he was going to provide the tangible evidence of how we might rearrange our lives to live better and more organically. But living more organically, at least in Wright's mind, was incompatible with living in the city. He knew that there would always be those who would prefer the hustle of the big cities, but he was also anticipating a revolt that would occur when people awoke to the realization that there's more to life than Fifth Avenue. Some of us will always want to huddle. Some of us will always want to pig pile. Some of us will let us... That'll, that'll segregate the uh, sheep from the goats, so to speak. You can stay and huddle and pig pile if you want to. But when you feel yourself to be an individual and you feel this declaration of our freedom, when you get that into your system, you'll want to go out somewhere where you can be as alone occasionally and be yourself as you want to be and have the benefit of nature. You see, the city now is a divorce from nature. 
It didn't used to be such a divorce from nature as it is now. But now it is a great divorce from nature. And there's no substitute. You see, quality, there used to be a big sign on the roadsides. I used to say it, it was advertising a patent medicine, I think. So quality knows no substitute, but nothing truer was ever said. Now quality cannot come from pig fowling and herding and traveling with the herd. There was a major rift between quality and quantity that Frank Lloyd Wright saw as directly influencing American exceptionalism. He also saw art and architecture as a way to retain the fundamentals of the human spirit that's necessary for a healthy culture. Quality is not compatible with quantity. Quantity can never be quality. No matter what the quantity is, there will always be in it the rising within of quality, see. And that is culture, and that is our country. That's what we've declared, that it should give this so-called common man a break equal to any other man's break, what was good in him. And the faith of democracy is that that every man is good if he has a chance to be. He will be. Now, architecture gratifies that sense of the future, the uplift, the becoming. And of course, all art should, more or less does. But architecture primarily is the basis of that. And from it, you get your painters and you get your sculptors and you get your crafts people, all desiring to make something suitable, fitting, uh, calculated to make human life happier. Gadgetry is intended to make it easier and does. <laughs> but without these other things of the spirit, these mechanical things, which we have so many of now and so much of, that has given us a facility we don't know what to do with. All we can do now is to rush from here to there with some idea that we want to go somewhere. We want to go now. But what we get out of going isn't what's so important as it ought to be. It's statements like these that led some to believe at the time that Frank Lloyd Wright was some sort of disestablishmentarianist who simply wanted nothing more than to destroy the new way of living that the machine age had brought to society. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. As Wright saw it, science wasn't the answer to the pitfalls of society, but it could be used as the means to improve our culture if used properly. I think science has far outrun our capacity to take its gifts and use them with a proper profit to ourselves. I think science has now reached a point where we're on the brink by way of it. And we can destroy ourselves by one false step. Because science gave us things that we weren't yet ready to use. We didn't know how to use them properly. We don't know how to use speed. We don't know how to use uh, so many of the things science has given us yet. And the fact that we're crowding in cities shows it. Proves that we haven't learned anything that we haven't really profited by what science has done. 
Science destroyed the city. Science has given us the basis for an organic architecture. It's science now that builds the building, and we call organic. But science as a tool, not as a master. Wright was both cynical and optimistic about the future as he saw it when this audio was recorded in 1956. That year, Elvis had entered the music charts for the first time with Heartbreak Hotel. Schools were desegregating. General Electric released the first alarm clock. President Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act, creating the nation's freeway system. The first U-2 spy plane flew over the Soviet Union. The computer was invented by IBM. And the transatlantic telephone cable went online. Things are always either getting better or worse. They never stand still. Now, of course, I see great evidences in, in architecture. While much of it and most of it is imitative and not uh, really creative, still it's better than what we used to have. Still there is an improvement all down the line. There is a raising of standard, I think, in the country. And I believe that we're on the way to a culture of our own. I think we're going to have it. And I don't think I'd be alive here today. I wouldn't have the uh, work I have at my time of life unless that was there. I think that perhaps I today am one of the best proofs you could have of the fact that we're going to have it. Otherwise, they'd have chucked me out long ago. Frank Lloyd Wright died on April 4th, 1959, after suffering from abdominal pain and complications from intestinal surgery at 91 years of age. But he continued designing and building his works of art up until his final breath. With over 1,000 structural designs, 532 of which were completed, he left behind a legacy that has inspired and will continue to inspire artists, architects, freethinkers, and rugged individualists alike for generations to come. In a world where standardization reigns supreme, Frank Lloyd Wright bucked the trend, threw caution to the wind, and unbashedly defied the logic and opinions of everyone else around him. He was the American spirit personified and remains a testament to the potential that lies in every person who dares to leave the herd mentality behind. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. It isn't up to us really to do anything except what we believe in ourselves. To be ourselves is the great privilege conferred upon us now. Of course, uh, without conscience, we can't belong to a society. If we were without conscience, and we had a, the idea of freedom that seems to activate most of these people, we'd land in jail very soon. So conscience and freedom are inalienable companions. One is because of the other, should be. And if it isn't, we're not going to be a success as a nation. And we're not going to have an architecture, we're not going to have anything. We'll crawl. We'll go back to the slam, I guess. And there you have it. Great job as always, Jesse. And if you like what you heard, go to ouramericannetwork.org and hear more. And by the way, send us, if you can, your best stories. We'll put them up on air. 
They're not all Frank Lloyd Wright. Some of them are about you and the remarkable things and beautiful things you do in your life. OurAmericanNetwork.org Frank Lloyd Wright's story, a uniquely American story, here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and today we have Randall Haley's story of her father. Every year she goes home to a small town in Mississippi called Clarksdale for the Juke Joint Blues Festival. And by the way, if you've never been to Clarksdale, get there because the greatest guitarists in the world have spent time there. And that's everybody from Jimmy Page to Eric Clapton and Led Zeppelin spent time in there listening to all the great blues material that's in their blues museum. And this is the birthplace of the blues, this part of the country. Well, she wrote an article, Randall Haley, entitled Reflections, Jukin' in the Delta with My Old Man, for a publication called HottyToddy.com, one of the local news sources in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast. Today, she shares that story with us. Call me when you can, he said. That's not out of the ordinary text message from Daddy. Between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., Daddy and I are both busy working. We only call if it's urgent, otherwise, when you can, suffices. This morning was no different. I assumed it was going to be one of his usual, how do I do this on Facebook, or can you help me do that on the computer? Don't get me wrong, it was... But he asked me something this time that left me reminiscing. Born and raised in Clarksdale, Mississippi, you don't miss the Juke Joint Festival. It's the event of the year. Being the home of the blues, Clarksdale had to find another way to celebrate the music, and so there was Juke Joint. If, like me, you've moved away from the town, you go home for Juke Joint. It's just as important as Thanksgiving or Christmas. So he asked if I was planning to come home for this year's festival. Well, of course, I told him. And he asked, would you have time to walk around town with your old man? I can't remember Juke Joint Saturday that I didn't walk around town with my old man. I carry my camera to capture sights that aren't typically seen in the small Delta town, such as tourists from the Netherlands or Australia. And he holds me up at every corner to speak to every familiar face he sees, like Mr. Pettit, who he probably spoke to last week. As frustrating as it can be for my impatience, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Being able to carry a conversation with anyone he comes across, whether a new face or familiar, may be the only trait that I didn't get from the old man, but sometimes I wish I did. I got the sarcasm. My mother may even tell you I got a double dose. I got the wit, the work ethic, the sense of responsibility. Even if you had to drill it into me, I got it. Several of the characteristics that make my old man who he is were passed down to me, including the not-so-great. 
like pale skin and skinny legs. Well, thanks a lot, Dad. Growing up, he was hard on me. I remember tears upon tears, from softball games to the boy I thought I was in love with. When the old man was disappointed in me, the whole town knew. But of all the heartaches I've given him, and there were many, every heartfelt punishment ended with the same few words. Nobody loves you like your daddy does. He's right. Of course, he'll tell you he's never been wrong, but I can tell you with the certainty, nobody on this earth loves me as much as that old man. Even when I fought tooth and toenail with him at 17 years old and said some of the most hurtful things a daughter could ever say to her father, he hugged me with tear-filled eyes and he told me again. If I had to hurt and suffer to know that he loved me more than that boy that I was ready to run away with, then so be it. Daddy wasn't one to give in. I had to learn the hard way many times. I could be angry with him. I could hate him for the rest of my life. But I wasn't to leave that house, and you best believe I didn't. Today he asked me things like, How old are you? Followed by, Okay, you don't need your daddy's opinion on every decision you make in your life. I could go on and on about him and all that he's done for me, perhaps even write a whole book. But for the sake of this story, I'll revert back to the Juke Joint Festival. Block after block, we stroll through town listening to blues that rings out from every corner. Stepping into stores to see what's new and who we'll spend our dollar with this time. I snap photo after photo of locals and tourists alike. Whether I take 10 photos or 400, Daddy critiques each one. We may even share a few guilt-filled laughs as we walk through town. They usually start something like, Hey, look at that guy, or did you see what she had on? But the day that I snapped this photo was different. I thought I was capturing a special, unusual moment. Here my old man is with a toy at the dining table. The same get-your-elbows-off-the-table, chew-with-your-mouth-closed father that made us sit together as a family for dinner every night. But that wasn't what I captured. Moments after this photo was taken, that same playful, friendly man began praying aloud, pushing chairs and tables aside to clear way for paramedics to tend to the poor fellow who had a heart attack right beside us. I didn't know who he was at the time, but Daddy did. Mr. Whitman Bell passed away later that afternoon in the Clarksdale Hospital. And I'd like to think Daddy was talking to Mr. Bell during his last moments on earth in this photo. At least Mr. Bell was sitting around a table feasting and fellowshipping with friends during Clarksdale's most joyous time of the year when God decided to take him. It was hard to juke the rest of that year's festival, but I'm glad that I was there. Whether it was to see my old man's faith or that the love that I've known for so many years wasn't just for me. I was blessed to be with him that day, and I'm forever blessed to call him mine. So when tomorrow rolls around, whether we're dancing our skinny legs off to some rhythmic blues or we're testing our faith in the midst of a packed restaurant, sure, Dad, I'd be delighted to take a walk around town with my old man. I heard the news, there's good rock in the night. And what a beautiful story, what a voice. Randall Haley's, let's just face it, it was a love note to her dad. And any dad listening... You can only hope that you get a piece of writing like that for you in your lifetime. 
And I just hope I get something like that for my little girl. I'm tearing up a little bit. Hope you are too. That's what we like to do here on this show. And thanks for the work on this, Faith, and the whole team. These are the kind of stories we bring you every day here on Our American Stories. Randall Haley's story, a little piece of earth in the Mississippi Delta. Her dad's story, too, here on Our American Stories. Baby, bring my rocking shoes, cause tonight I'm going to rock away all my blues. Have you heard the news? Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, the Burning Question column with Heidi Mitchell, and you can see that in the Wall Street Journal. We love it because, well, it's just damn interesting. And this week's question, why are human ears shaped that way? Heidi, thanks again, as always, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And before we get into things, Heidi, we love to keep progress of your move into Chicago, Uh, You've moved from Brooklyn (laughs) to Chicago, and other than a great pizza crisis, which I know you're suffering from, because they actually consider that deep dish stuff pizza. But that's another thing. That's maybe another show. How how are things? I'm liking those those hot dogs, the char dogs. Oh yeah, with all the stuff on them. Anyway, now I'm making myself hungry. Oh no, no, Um, no doubt. Someone told me don't don't become a Cubs fan, even though it's so hard right now not to be a Cubs fan. Yeah, that's true. Hey, look, you've come at a good time and auspicious time. I know. I did. I brought good weather, and I brought the Cubs to the World Series. We'll see. Well, excellent. We'll, we'll keep tracking that because, you know, Americans <laughs> move a lot, and we are probably, as a people, the most itinerant, prosperous country in the world. I don't think I wonder Finns, if that's true. That I, might be true. Maybe that should be a burning question, Heidi. Why do we move so much? Why, do we Why can't we so sit much? still? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> it's meta-ADHD. I think it could be. Maybe the whole country is. Let's talk about <laughs> ears, Heidi. What on earth? made you and the crew over there at the Wall Street Journal think this one up? Well, I think maybe it's the outgoing president and his very large ears had us all thinking about. He does have some big ears. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm going to pull a Seinfeld ear. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's on the list and it came up now. And uh, I think that maybe we're all like slightly pining for the days when, you know, it was politics as usual, not politics as reality show. Yeah, that's true. You know, one day, I'll never forget this. I was at an airport at JFK. Our acting teacher had assigned us to just watch couples greet each other uh, who would not seen each other in a while, and that we could tell the nature of the relationship by the greeting. And it was fascinating. Well, what we started fixating on was ears. And I don't know why, but they became very funny things to start watching because they really are weird-looking ears. They are weird-looking. And if you think as we're talking, if you touch the top of your ear, I'm not in front of a mirror, but I have these weird ears that don't curl all the way at the top. And they have a, it looks like a dog took a bite out of them or something. They have all, they have all these little ridges at the top. So I had asked the doctor about that, um, and he just said, you know, basically... You, you would if you if you slap someone else's ears on your face, you would hear totally different. Well, because you're just used. Everyone has their own um, 
way of hearing and they he hear differently if you have different ears slapped to your face, which I'm sure there's been ear transplants done and maybe it was really weird. So do, so, so do the shape and size of ears make us hear better or worse? Well, they we it doesn't really, it's not quite like that. It's more like you're, you're only born with one pair, and so that's just how you hear. And so it's, not, it's already optimized for you, for everyone. You get used to it. So, so he was saying if you, know, if you had this ear transplant, you would, it would just be super weird, and it would take time to get used to it because we each have our own um, sound signature that we hear. So if I took your ears, your huge, I'm sure, ears, and slapped them onto my tiny head. Um, <clears throat> it would be weird because I'm just used to what I've got. Right, right. And by the way, I love the part of your job, Heidi, where you take what's seemingly a silly question or just an odd question, but you run it down and you go chase the best experts in the field. <laughs> and, and this one happens to be a guy named Dr. Rickett. Tell us about oh Dr. Rickett. This is the best guy. I mean, it, w- it was really weird because I had such a hard time finding somebody. Um, and it ended up, we, I ended up with a, a guy who specializes in hearing aids. So he, he specializes in, in optimizing um, creating these hearing aids, and so he's at Vanderbilt University, and he was a great interview. He had lots of fun with this. But if you scroll, if you're online and you look at the comments, if you scroll down, it just, there's 72 comments, and it devolved into this evolution <laughs> crisis at the bottom of the page. So, you know, they say, don't read your reviews. I shouldn't read my comments. <laughs> no, no, you but shouldn't. But this guy, Dr. Ricketts, yeah, he's great. He was really um, very clear and um, had a good sense of humor as well, which is always a so, prerequisite for so somebody. So from the column you wrote, the shape of the ear has a big effect on how one hears. Some animals, it turns out, have rotating ears. Humans don't need ear functions with up-down precision hearing, quote, since we're not likely to be attacked from above or carried off by a bird. Fascinating. Like, like I said, he has a good sense of humor. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so think if you're, if you're like a, an owl, your ears kind of go around, or there are other um, rodents that can do that because they could be you know, dragged off by some flying crazy thing, like an owl. Um, right. They can be dragged off. To, but since we're so high up on the food chain and we're so big, we don't have to have that kind of precise hearing like a dog hears at night and all those things that um, that we don't we don't really have to have such precise hearing. So you know we've evolved to have ears that do the best job that they can do, and and they're, they don't need to hear up and down and know what's coming from above. You can kind of feel it. But we do have the, the positioning of the ears on either side of our head. You know, if you can imagine that, um, if you put a point in between them, you know, so you can kind of geolocate from the 3D of your ears. Um, try, you can triangulate, right, where that, where that is coming from. So we are able to do that by the very fact that our two ears are on either side of our head. Yeah. And what are the different parts of the ear, Heidi? And do they all have a different purpose? So they do. So if you start with the outside, the, the pinna is what is you see is what you see on the outside of your head, and that is kind of like a funnel. Um, it's kind of like a horn, and it sort it points slightly forward. If you can touch your ears and see how they kind of like point forward, and so that's gathering more sound from the front. And then what happens from behind is that it's sort it's called shadowing, and so the sounds behind you are sort of like muffled. So you're more you're more closely hearing the person who you're facing. 
um, which helps in, in lots of situations yeah. to be able to focus in on the person in front of you, right, and not let all the ambient noise around you get in the way. If your ears were flat against your head, like maybe you had them taped down, you might have a harder time <laughs> telling right, right. who's talking to you and focusing on the person. And then, and then inside, um, there's a whole bunch of different things happening um, inside, um, including, um, you know, your ear canal, which sort of it takes that horn and funnels the, the sound down, and it acts as an amplifier. But it's still in the two to four thousand hertz range, which is so you can hear sibilance and vowel sounds. And but it's not it's not a really high range, a wide range like a lot of animals have. And then at the end of that canal, um, where all your um, your earwax is lodged, um, is this sort of thought, the eardrum, which is called the tympanic membrane, and it's super sensitive to sound. Um, and then there's other stuff behind that that then signals signals your brain. And by the way, the, the earlobe we noted here has no other function but then this. As we men are shaving and we hit it, it's there to bleed profusely oh. for the next three days. I think that's the only purpose an earlobe serves. Well, you can read the comments and find lots of other purposes for your earlobe. <laughs> Although I'm sure, I'm sure. By the but way, Dr. Rick, say, yeah. Dr. Rick had said this, the ear is self-cleaning, a self-cleaning, self-oiling machine, so don't shove Q-tips in there. That was going to be my next question. What was, what, was that, what was that advice up to? Why did he say that? I think most of us do <laughs> shove Q-tips in there. Not only do most of us, but he even does. Um, it just feels so good. I don't know why, but I think what you're doing is you're, you're, you're compacting all that wax that's meant to be in there. So you're, you have little tiny hairs and you have wax and that's supposed to collect all this dirt and stuff that's coming in. And then it's supposed to naturally expel it itself. I guess when you shower, when it gets wet, it will, it will expel occasionally that, that you'll see sometimes, um, this is gross, but you'll see some little bits of wax that come out. So when there's like a lot of dirt, it'll expel itself. So you're, you're not really supposed to stick anything in there. It's really a well-oiled machine that does its job pretty well. Um, however, Johnson & Johnson invented the Q-tip, and so many of us are addicted to this guilty pleasure. I clean my ears every morning, and my daughter will come to me, and she'll ask me to clean her ears out, and she's only seven. I do, too, and I love it, and maybe one day we'll clear our ears together, Heidi. I mean, you know, whatever. Oh, That'd be a really... Oh, well, by the way, we'll do that on the air one day, Heidi. Yeah, That'd yeah, be yeah, really yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, it's uh, it's you can't see us. <laughs> That's what, that, thank goodness. And by the way, cleaning cl- cleaning your ear can actually dampen your hearing. Doctor Ricketts told us. Yeah, so you can. What you're doing is you, you're most of us like you're pushing that wax further in. So unless you're just like doing a gentle circle around the kind of the outer rim, usually people are jamming it into their ear. So you're basically compacting that ear wax. <clears throat> and I know for a personal example, my brother was having some weird. Um, hearing issues. He went to the doctor. The doctor did some suctioning thing and got this huge chunk of wax no, out of his gross. ear. Uh huh. <laughs> he had it's totally gross, and he had just been jamming that wax in there for years. And wow. he pulled it out, and he could hear like a charm. You hear that, everybody? So you learn stuff right here on our American <laughs> Stories. Watch out with the Q-tips; it could be dangerous. Heidi, thanks as always for joining us, and we'll keep talking about Chicago. And hey, try the Big Al's uh, meat sandwich and beef sandwich. There's nothing better. Again, Heidi Mitchell from the Wall Street Journal. The burning question, why are human ears shaped that way? This is Our American Stories. Get that finger out of your ear. You don't know where that finger's been.
This is Our American Stories. And our next story, well, it's about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. It all went down in the city of Benton Harbor, Michigan, in 2006. Andrew Collins was a narcotics officer. Jamel McGee was the brand-new father of a beautiful baby boy. Let's go to what we'll call a split screen of these two men on how that day went down, starting with Jamel. February 8th, 2006 was the day that forever changed my life. February 8th, 2006, really just another day for me. All I wanted to do was go to the store and get some milk for my son. All I wanted on that day was another conviction. So I caught a ride from some guys that I knew that probably would be up to no good. I had caught a guy with some crack. He knew a guy with some more crack, so we made a phone call. So we get to the store, and this guy asked me to use the phone. At the time, I didn't think anything of it, so I gave him my phone. So I get to the store, and I see the vehicle, just like I was told. One guy in the vehicle, and another guy comes out of the store. I'm not sure if he has something to do with it, but I'm going to make sure he has something to do with it. So I'm coming out the store, and this guy's approaching me, talking about he's a cop. Where's the dope? I'm like, what dope? I don't have any dope. I ain't got no dope. It ain't my dope. How many times have I heard this before? That's what everybody says. So I had him lock him up. How could I be going to jail for some drugs that isn't mine? How is this possible? Trial? He's going to take it to trial the way that I wrote that report? He's going to take it to trial? Oh, what a waste of my time. Well... I wasn't about to plead guilty to something that I know I didn't do. So I told my story, and I got my conviction. And Jamel McGee was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and wrongly imprisoned, Jamel was sentenced to federal prison, as we just heard, for 10 years for dealing drugs, a crime he didn't commit. Here's Jamel and what he was feeling after he heard the prison doors close behind him. Um, I felt like I had lost everything. There was nothing else that mattered at this point. So my attitude was, I don't care. So that was my goal for whenever I got home, was to find him and hurt him. Jamel continued to battle with his demons. So <clears throat> after battling with these, these thoughts, I'm getting headaches trying to block it out. Okay, because I don't want to hear it no more. I'm trying to put something else in my head to get this thought out of my head. And I quickly realized that every situation, I had a choice. Before it even happened, I had a choice. But I chose the more convenient, easy way every time, which led me to foster care, juvenile, the links, the boys' homes, the prisons, the jails, my decisions led me there. So <clears throat> I'm like, you know what, God, it's your way. I'm tired of being in my way. I'm tired of this. My way hasn't worked all these years, so I need something different. I got a son. I want to see him. I want to be able to raise him. I want to be a part of his life. So I got to do something different with mine. So I get back to my cell, and I prayed before I went to sleep. And I was like, you know what, God? I want to wake up tomorrow as if I'm at home. So I want to live every day after this as if I'm 
at home. So I got up that morning, my first thing to do was speak to somebody, which was very hard for me to do. And I came out and I was just like, all right, hey, first person I saw, hey, how you doing? They looking at me like, this dude is crazy, who is this? Like, but I didn't care at that point what nobody thought, because I said I was gonna go through with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna adapt this change into my life. I'm gonna do something different. Here's Jamel on what happened shortly after his heart changed. I go to work this one morning and the people were calling me as soon as I got to work. So I go to the council office and he was like, the fax machine beeped and he handed me the paper. And it was a letter from the judge saying my conviction was overturned and I had to leave the premises immediately. So if y'all didn't catch that, we can try all we want to. It just don't work that way. It just won't work. God has the say-so. He has the ultimate plan. He did that. He, me letting that anger, that frustration go, God opened the door for me to go. Jamel served four years of his 10-year sentence. But why the early release? Well, here's Andrew Collins, that narcotics officer we heard from earlier, who falsified the evidence that led to Jamel's imprisonment. He shares with us what happened to him exactly one year before Jamel was set free. So February of 2008, I get caught with crack, heroin, and marijuana in my office. And in one day, my life crumbled. All the money that I was making, legally and and illegally, gone. Friends that I had built, friends who I thought would be there for a lifetime, Nobody knows a police officer like a police officer. Y'all are my boys. Gone. Because they were worried about their careers. Rightly so. My family having to see my wife's face when I was trying to explain to her that I just lost my job. And in a day, it was gone. So I went on a three-day journey. Day one got caught. Day two thought about suicide. There's no way I can get out of this. Day three, went and saw a pastor. Because on day two, my wife came home from work and saw that I was depressed and said, you need to go talk to that pastor that you've been going to. So I called that pastor up and I said, I got to talk to you. He said, yeah, you do. I've seen the news. So I sit down with him and I tell him, I, I, I confessed everything. It felt so good to get it out of me, to finally admit what I had done wrong. And he listened patiently and he said, whoo, boy, you're in trouble. <laughs> I remember thinking like, you, sir, are a terrible counselor. <laughs> like, I know I'm in trouble. What do I do now? And he said, where are you at with Jesus. So we knelt down there in his office and he prayed because I felt like if I talked to God, he'd strike me dead right there. I still couldn't wrap my mind around grace. We said, amen, I was bawling and I said, what do I do next, man? I'm a man, there's like a list. There's gotta be a list of things I can do. Give me a list and I'll check off the boxes. He said, read your Bible, that's it. Get to know your Lord. I was like, I don't know if you ever read that thing, pastor, but it's it's kind of boring. He's like, no, man, God did something in you today. He gave me a a Bible that was a little easier to read for me from what I grew up in, and I started reading. I was blown away at all the little bombs that were going off in my soul about Jesus dealing with people that were just as jacked up or even worse than me. And the longer I was away from police work, the less I felt bad I got caught and the more I felt bad for what I had done. So I went to the FBI and I said, look, I want to right my wrongs. 
So I sat down, they put a, a stack of uh, reports in front of me and they said, we need you to look through all these reports and we need, to we need you to tell us which ones are bad. And I said, honestly, out of these 200 cases, it'd be easier to highlight the ones that are good. My corruption ran deep. And I started working it out one case at a time, one case at a time, one case at a time. And one of those cases was Jamel McGee. And I opened it up and I said, that's a bad case. It's a bad case. It's a bad case. And this is a heck of a story. I couldn't wrap my mind around grace, this detective said. Read your Bible, get to know your Lord, his pastor said. Both of these men on a spiritual journey, both born in very different circumstances, one side of the law and the other. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story about grace, about love, about God, and so much more. A crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. Jamel's story, Andrew's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to our story about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. And when we left off, Andrew Collins had come clean, given his life to Christ, and he lived happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. January 09, Officer Collins pled guilty and got a three-year prison sentence. And in February of 09, Jamel was set free. A switch. But the story does not stop there. 2010, August, I get out. So I reach out to a pastor of a local church up there, and he says, we're having this thing in August of 11 called Hoops, Hip Hop, and Hot Dogs, H3. So I said, I want to be a part of that. So I'm standing in Broadway Park, like, okay, where are the people that I need to be reconciled with? Bring them, Lord. Bring them, Lord. Benton Harbor is a small town, by the way, maybe a little too small. Here's Jamel on what happened that day. In August 2011. I got out. Um, I got to meet my son for the first time. Um, and he wanted to go to this park. It was, he's seen a lot of people standing out there. So I'm like, all right, come on, let's go. Walking down the sidewalk, I'm like, I thought I seen Andrew in, up under the pavilion. I'm like, no, nah, that can't be him. Not in Broadway Park. And he turned around, and I'm like, yeah, that's him. In my mind, the first thing that popped up was, get him, get him. Now he's here, he's in front of you. All that I was feeling in the prison was back on my shoulders. So I go over there, beeline, stuck out my hands. I said, hey, you remember me? And he said, yeah, and when he said it, I squeezed him. And 
in my mind was two things. It was myself, again, telling me to hit him. Hit him. What are you waiting on? You're taking too long. Hit him. Then God was like, hey. <laughs> God was like, hey, I got this. Get out of my way. I got this. Step out of my way. Let me avenge this for you. I got this. I can do far more than you ever can. So I'm like, hmm, hit him. <laughs> hit him. And my son was right there, and I was just like, just explain to my son why I missed out on these years of his life, because I'm having a hard time doing it. And I, I let him go, and I walked away. And each step I walked away, I felt lighter, I felt better. The closer I got to the curve, I began to think, man, that's over with. I'm gonna leave that to God where it was supposed to be. I can't do nothing about it anyway. Forget it, I'll never see him again anyway. What are the chances that they never saw each other again? What a scene, by the way, in a movie, huh? And by the way, as the mainstream media covered this incredible story, they left God out of it. And by the way, this is one of the things we will talk about on this show. You don't have to be a Christian to love the show, and you can be an atheist and love the show. But messing with who people are by removing parts of their lives is just despicable. And the God story here is central to the story. Andrew Collins picks up the story by telling us how he picked up his own life after the time he spent in prison. So I start working for this place called the Mosaic CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. Cafe Mosaic, if you all have ever been there, downtown Benton Harbor, great place to go get a coffee. So I'm working there as the cafe manager. There's another part of the program called Jobs for Life, where people from the community, maybe they've got felonies on their record, maybe they've never had a job before, and they need a little bit of hand up. They don't need a hand out, they need a hand up because they want to do something with their life. They go through Jobs for Life, they graduate Jobs for Life, and then they either get absorbed into one of our social enterprises or they went out and got jobs with uh, a community people that we had made uh, contact with. Everybody in Jobs for Life, every student, ended up with a mentor. Anybody putting two and two together yet? <laughs> one day, Miss Princella comes down because she runs Jobs for Life. She says, hey, there's this guy in my class called Zuki. Do you know Zuki? I want to introduce you guys to my, my friend Zuki. Uh, I said, no, I know the street name. I've heard it, but I don't think I know him personally. Don't think we ever met. Would you be his mentor? God has laid it on my heart that you should be his mentor. <laughs> God's funny, right? <laughs> so I said, you know my story, Miss P. You know what I've done in this city. I don't know if I've affected his family. Why don't you go ask him uh, what he thinks about it? So Jamel, in two minutes or less, what did that conversation sound like? Ooh. Yeah. It was like um, she came over and was, I was sitting in class. Everybody had a mentor. And she was like, yeah, we finally got your mentor. She was like, yeah, God has laid it on my heart for you two guys to be mentor, mentee. And um, I don't know if you guys had any history together, but um, yeah, I think you guys should be mentoring. I'm like, okay, get on with it. Who is it? And she's like, Andrew Collins. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no way. There's no way I'm doing that. Jamel wasn't finished. She was like, okay, fine, we'll get you somebody else. And I'm like, wait a minute, Miss P. 
That was my decision. Let me pray on that real fast, because I don't want no more of my decisions to affect my life. This was my decision, so I wanted to be God's decision. So I prayed, and I opened my eyes, and there was a book on my desk, and there was two figures on a um, mountain that was written in words, and it was one pulling the other one up. I was like, all right, God, you got it. It's evident this is the path you want me to take. I'm going to take it. All right, God, you got it. And by the way, this is why so many of us have prayer lives, and it's not just Christians, it's Jews, it's Muslims. Sometimes we get in the way of the right decision. Our own egos, our own pride, men particularly, women too, pride, the thing that gets in the way almost all the time. And that's what was getting in the way for Jamel. And by the way, when he said, that was my decision, let me pray on that real fast. How you could have left that out of this story, which, by the way, look up this story all over the media, CBS, ABC, you name it, it was covered. And this was left out, this prayer. God, I don't know how you do that. Again, I just don't know how you do that with good conscience. So these two guys, well, they're going to be together. Here's Andrew on meeting the guy who he would be mentoring, a guy who had only been referred to as Zuki. So we sit down and I say, hey, uh, I used to be a police officer in the city of Benton Harbor. I did some awful things. If I've ever harmed you or your family, can you let me know? I'd like to apologize for it. And he's smiling at me the whole time. I'm like, what is this dude smiling at me? This ain't funny. I'm trying to be serious. And I said, so once I got done with my little spiel, I said, look, man, what's so funny? And he just shook his head. He said, man, we already had this talk. I said, we did. He said, yeah, Broadway Park. And I was instantly flashed back to that moment in the park. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and I just went to apologize. And dude, I am so sorry. I felt like God gave me a second chance. I'm so sorry. He said, I know. And he was like offended. I know. I said, dude, there's got to be something I can do. He's like, no, no, no. It's over. It's over. You were sorry then, and I trusted that. And I know you are now. You don't have to say it anymore. It's forgiven. It's done. I was like, dude, can we, can we do this mentor thing? He said, I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. I said, man, this is, this is blowing my mind, dude. Like four minutes ago, I'm making chocolate chip cookies. Can, can, and now this, like this is, this, can we pray? <laughs> He's like, let's pray. So we, we, we bowed our heads right there and we prayed that God would bless this friendship, that God would make uh, basically beauty for ashes. And we prayed that. And he got up. We said amen. He got up and walked out because he had an appointment to get to. And I went in the back and cried like a child because I felt forgiven. <laughs> and then I was, we were meeting every week. And I was like, yo, bro, we, we need an employee in the cafe. And you need a job. Uh, are you, do uh, you need a job? He's like, yeah, I need a job. You know I need a job. I said, well, how about this? Because what if, what if I hire you? Or what if we hire you? And, and you'd be, and what, are you a good worker? Because if I've got to write you up, Things are already tense enough, you know, like, ah. <laughs> and he did that. He just smiled at me. This dude smiled. It's like, it breaks down all board. He's like, no, nah, man, no, nah, I got you. I got you. Mm-hmm. And he started working. He was the best worker I had ever seen. I worked so hard. I'd never seen somebody work so hard in that cafe. So every day I say, thank you, Jamel. Thank you so much for, for putting your all into this. And this is amazing. Thank you. Do you want to hit me? <laughs> <laughs> He'd be like, what? I'd be like, I just want to check. I just want to make sure. Because I don't want to be the cash register someday and then just get the big old. I want to make sure I know it's coming if it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no, bro, no. We're good. And it's so real. It's so real. It's so authentic. What a beautiful story about forgiveness, brokenness, 
and true reconciliation by two guys who should be hardened, bitter enemies. Jamel wrote the book about his story entitled Convicted, A Crooked Cop, An Innocent Man, and An Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. And that he was able to say to this guy, it's over, it's done. Think about that in your own lives. If you could say those words to bitterness you'd held on to. And again, this is the power of God in people's lives. I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. Let's make beauty from ashes. Well, let's all make beauty from ashes. If this story can teach us one thing, it's possible. And so we're so happy to have brought you Andrew's story, Jamel's story, this story of a little Benton Harbor, Michigan. It could be happening all over this country, folks. And if the media would only report the source of so much of this reconciliation, not the fake reconciliation they talk about in the news, this is the real thing. And something tells me God's behind a lot of it. Their stories here on Our American Stories.